Amen. Have a seat. Good morning, Harvest. Oh, it's a joy to be with you this morning. Um, I love a potentially rainy Sunday. Is it raining by now? Sweet. An officially rainy Sunday. Um, my boys and I love that. We get excited, right, Luke? Rainy Sunday. Hey, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm so honored to be here with you. I, I love our times of worship so much on Sunday morning. Just centers my heart. I love sharing um, the intimacy and worship that we have with each one of you. And if you're a visitor here, just want you to know that you're very welcome. And uh, we're really glad that you're here with us this morning. Pray that this would really be a blessing, uh, that the gospel would be made clear in a way that inspires you to love Jesus more this morning. We are uh, in a series on Exodus. So if you're new with us, you're coming in almost right smack in the middle. Exodus 19, that's where we're going to be. We started this series back in August. And we've been uh, walking through, and today we're going to be really in the first six verses of chapter 19. Now, I want to tell you why this is a critical uh, passage and a critical uh, juncture in the story. We're about to get the, uh, the famous, epic, uh, uh, you know, Hollywood-ized chapter of the Bible, the Ten Commandments. Like, that's coming in Exodus 20. In case you didn't know that, you're going, ah, that's where those are. Yes, that's where they are. We're about to be there. Now, 19, I've never seen a motion picture on, and, uh, and they're missing some good stuff here. But I want to tell you that, that, this, that 19's critical to understand so that we know what to do with the law when we receive it in 20. So that Israel knew what to do with the law when they received the law of God at Mount Sinai with the thunderous, bellowing voice of God giving them the law. Uh, that, that was couched in the context of 19. And so what we will do today, Lord willing, is, is really get the ball on the tee so that our hearts are postured in a way where we are excited and cannot wait to receive the law, understanding more clearly what the law's purposes are in our life. Does that make sense? Let me just say one more word of introduction that, that I think the law is generally thought of in one of two ways today. Um, and I don't mean just by Christians, I mean by peoples of the world and religions of the world, I think that many live their life by the law. Like their, their entire religion or their life is centered around the law. They've got to be obedient to a standard of a law given or a level of that standard in order to please God and gain his favor and even to be saved. So their, law, their life revolves around obedience to this law. It consumes them. And then I think there's another group of people that, that live in what they would like to call a post-law spirituality. Where they say, you know, if it's really about grace and it's about love and it's about finding God and God finding us, then uh, and once salvation is secure in Him, you know, we kind of graduated from the law. Now we live in this thing called grace. And and and, and I just want to say this kind of this kind of shallow uh, gospel with no law, with no duty, with no obligation, with no obedience, is a very shallow spirituality that lacks of intimacy. So I want to tell you, there's this, this, this kind of, there's this kind of two competing worldviews as it relates to the law. And I want to tell you this morning that neither one are biblical. That biblically, the law serves an invaluable purpose for our lives, even our lives in Christ. We're not to be on the treadmill of performing according to the law to win our God's approval. That's a false gospel. And we're not supposed to be uh, living as if the law has no importance or relevance in our life. That's a shallow gospel. The truth of the gospel and the, how the law relates to the gospel is really set right here in Exodus 19. And I pray, and I'm going to pray together, that God would teach us to cherish and delight in his law from the context of the gospel. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we, we ask for your help with this passage that you would just guide us through it, that you would give truth and clarity. Lord, I think this is, I think this is so important that we understand the law. Um, and Christ is the end of the law. And Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And yet understand in context what relevance did the law have then and what relevance does it have now in conforming us into the image of Christ. And that that be the deep desire of our heart. Not because we have to. Not because there's a God who is angry at us if we don't. But because we have been rescued for that very privilege. And that others might see you in us and come to know the truth of who you are through us. The undeserved privilege of ministry. That we understand the law so that we know how to delight the heart of our God who has loved us and rescued us. I pray that would become incredibly clear. That, 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 that we really, that our hearts are just tuned to the law this morning. That we long for it. That we may delight in it. That you may delight in us. And we may have greater intimacy with you. 
God, to that end, will you speak through me? I must decrease because you must increase in this time. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you guys would stand with me just for the reading of God's word, I'm going to read just six verses from 19, then I'll kind of summarize the rest. But let me read these first six verses. This is where we're going to camp this morning. Exodus 19, 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came out of the wilderness of Sinai. So they've moved, gang, from the wilderness of Sin to the wilderness of Sinai. Verse 2, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. It's the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may have a seat. Let me just go ahead and tell you, the rest of the chapter, after Moses delivers these words uh, to the people of Israel... Uh, sees Moses going back up the mountain, receiving word from God, back down the mountain, then gathering the people to the foot of the mountain, then going up the mountain with Aaron and the priest and um, receiving word and coming back down. And, and all that is in preparation of chapter 20 where the people gathered around the mountain and the presence of God dense upon the mountain, they may hear the very voice of God giving forth the law. Okay, that's the context. But the, 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 um, the ceremony and the importance and the display of God's holiness of how we are as a community to approach him is important. But it's set on the back of what's most important, and that's this verse 4 through 6. And so let me read just 4 again and start walking you through these verses and why they are, they are, they are, they are such enormously critical verses in our understanding how to walk with the Lord our God and have intimacy with him even today. So verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. He says, Moses, I want you to remind the people. The giving of the law starts with this. Israel, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The first thing God does is point them back to the very essence of their salvation, that they were a people in need, fair to say a people in rebellion, a people whose hearts were hard. By the way, they were called according to God's redemptive purposes, not because of their goodness, not because of their talent pool, not because of their IQ, uh, really nothing in and of themselves. God chose through their forefather Abraham to call out a people, He chose a people that through that people he would demonstrate his goodness and his mercy and his grace and the abundance of his provision to the whole world. That the world might look at Israel and know that their God is the only God. That's why why he called. they, They didn't do anything to earn that. That was nothing in and of themselves. But God made a promise. And he said in that promise, I'm going to call you to be my people. I'm going to display who I am to the world through you. And I'm also going to bless all nations through you, a foreshadowing of the Messiah will come, a Jewish Messiah who will bring salvation to the whole world. And he says, I'm also going to give you a land, and he puts them in this land. And there comes a time, the end of Genesis, and the narratives in Joseph's life, where through famine, God drives his people out of Israel and brings them to Egypt. And this book, Exodus, opens, and they're, and they're in Egypt. And, and by the way, they've been there 400 years. And uh, I, I, we, we, you, we hear that so often, I don't think we grab it. Like, that's, that's longer than our country's been in existence. Like, 400 years they've thought, our God has forgotten us. Like, I'm not sure that his promise will really endure. We are just slaves in Egypt. And they are hard-hearted, they are bitter, they are grumbling, they are angry, they shake their fists, they blaspheme. And God sends word to a burning bush to a man named Moses, an Israelite named Moses, and says, tell the people I have not forgotten them. Can you imagine being the generation that gets that news? Hey, the Lord appeared to me, he has not forgotten you. No way, yeah, he's given me, uh, he, he's told me to go before Pharaoh and to let my people go so that they could worship me. Not merely interested in liberating them from their captivity to uh, evil, but bringing them into my very presence that they may be wholly satisfied in me. Liberation and redemption. And Israel hears this, and we saw it back in chapter 4, they worshipped. 
And can you imagine the worship after 400 years of silence that you would render to the Lord to know he's not forgotten you and it's your generation that will receive his promise in that way? Wouldn't that be something? And they worship and then God does something amazing. He brings plagues on Egypt. Tells, through Moses, communicates to Pharaoh, gives him a chance to repent. Brings plagues, and Pharaoh's heart is continually hardened. And they get to that tenth plague, and he says, "Now Israel, take a lamb and take kill it, and take the blood and smear it on the doorpost. And then here's what we're going to do: the angel of death's going to come through and kill all the firstborn in Egypt, except those who are under the blood of a lamb. They will be saved." It's an incredible picture of this foreshadowing of salvation through the first Passover, where the angel of death passed over all those who were saved under the blood of a lamb. And Israel saw that God did it, yet again, in the midst of their faithlessness, God's faithfulness prevailed. And he brings them out exactly like he says. They they are just walking in the mercy of God. And they come to the Red Sea, and and, and they're pinned in, and here come the uh, the Egyptian chariots, and it looks like, boy, this is the end. God, why'd you bring us out here to die? There's always the shaking of fist at God. And God splits the sea, and in an instant, he brings them through, and there's this great picture of the moment of salvation. The waves crash back down on the Egyptians. And God has saved his people. He has brought them out of Egypt. And yet, the next thing we see is they grumble because they don't have, they don't know where their next meal's coming from. Not that God won't provide, they just don't know where. And they have a God of comfort and a God of security in the things of this world. So God's gotten them out of Egypt, but he hasn't gotten Egypt out of them. And God promised to do more than just liberate. He promised to redeem. And so God's faithful, and he's going to give a manna from the, uh, from the uh, heavens every single morning that you learn to trust me and walk with me and quail at night. And then they come to a place, and there's no water, and they're thirsty. And God says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, they accuse Moses, and they accuse God. Moses says, your accusation against me is that of God. I'm merely following him. And so God says, here's what we'll do. Sit him down. We're going to have a court trial And this looks bad. Is Moses on trial? No. Is it the people of Israel? No, they ought to be. But it's God. I'm going to identify with the rock. Moses, you strike the rock. Can't do that, Lord. That'd look like I'm striking you. Strike the rock. I will bear the reproach of my people so that they may drink the riches of my provision. Picture of the gospel again. And these people continually walking saved, now being sanctified by the mercy of God, come to the foot of Sinai, and God says, remember, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Remember how I rescued you. And what he wants you to remember was that it was nothing of you. That God came in and claimed your life out of the darkness, and despite your grumbling fish-shaking, blasphemous, rebellious heart. He dragged you into salvation. He invited, but yet he mercifully pulled you through the sea. He mercifully closed the door on your captive, the enemy. He mercifully secures you, and he mercifully and faithfully sanctifies you. Our salvation is of the Lord. God wants you to remember, I saved you. I saved you. Now let me tell you where we're meant to be right after verse four. We're meant, to be, we're meant to be stilled in that and go, oh my goodness, he did. And why did he save me? Israel's meant to go, why would you save us? Like we're crooked and perverse. I did nothing to merit the favor of God. Why is he giving his favor upon me? We're meant to relish and the mercy and grace, by the very definition of those words, mercy is not getting what we deserve, which was judgment. Grace is getting what we did not deserve, which is salvation. By grace, through faith, he saved us. And we're meant to be overwhelmed, broken down, softened, to the extent that we're postured going, oh my God, thank you. And thank you doesn't seem to cut it. Like, how can my life say thank you to what you've done for me? Like, that's what we're meant to to be at a place where we're just literally hands up worshiping, saying, God, I don't even know how to respond to the goodness of the gospel, but but just, just here I am. That's where we're meant to be at the end of verse four. Understand this, gang. The giving of the law is coming. But God, make sure you hear it loud and clear. I saved you. And now I'm going to give you the law. 
That's critical. He didn't give us the law and determine by how faithfully we could follow it whether or not he would save us. He saved us. And then he gave law. Now that would have been obvious if he didn't give the speech. But he said, when you sit them down, you start with reminding them that I've already done the work. It's finished. Then I'm going to give them the law. To which our crooked hearts go, well then why would I obey the law if I don't have to? Which is to completely misunderstand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to unpack it. Let me say this. My children, my boys, I love them so much. Matter of fact, my love for them is secure. Now into eternity. I could not love them anymore. No matter how much they obey, I don't love them more. And even when they disobey, I don't love them less. My love is secure. Now, when they obey, I delight in their obedience. There's blessings to their obedience. And when they disobey, I'm saddened by their disobedience. There's consequences to their disobedience. But understand, my love is secure. The intimacy of our relationship may be affected, but our, my love is secure. God is going to come to us in this text. He's going to come to Israel and going to say, my love for you is secure. And the more, that you, the more impressed you are with what God has done on your behalf, because you're that impressed with how undeserving you were of his favor, the more your heart will be postured to know, how do, I, how do I ravish the heart of God? How do I delight in him and he in me? And he's gonna say, I'll show you how. I'll give you what delights my heart. I love justice, and I love righteousness, and I love love, and I love selflessness, and I love grace, and I'm gonna give you the law so you know how to live this out in your community and display my heart to the world. I'm gonna give you that. And if it's your desire to delight in me, then here, live like this. All right, uh, first, first slide, kind of a preamble, preamble, before our first point. The, the law, here's what we're going to be In response to his love for us, we desire to obey the law. When, when, by the time we get to next week in Exodus 20, I hope that we are edge of our seat. By the end of this message, I hope that we're going, Lord, give it to me. I, I, I want to know your law, that I might delight in your law, that you might delight in me, that the peoples of the earth might know you. That, that's where this is taking us. First thing I want you to understand, it's in, his, it's in response to his love that we desire to obey. It's not in an effort, in fear, that we might otherwise somehow lose his favor if we don't, or that we might gain his favor if we do. The matter of his love is settled and secure. This is a matter of delight. This is a matter of intimacy. And so he says, and this is, what, this is what can be confusing. We get to verse four. He says, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Does that sound like a, uh, a cooperative effort? Say no. No, I, I think there's a scene in Lord of the Rings. I might totally be jacking this up. So you guys that are real Lord of the Rings aficionado, I, just, I beg your pardon here. But I, I, I do remember the eagles. I, I can't remember the little salvation mission they're on. It's not little. The salvation, I think it, it's Gandalf. Forgive me if I'm wrong. I think it's Gandalf. And, I, and he is in, all I know is he's in a moment of despair, like sure death has befallen him. The powers of darkness has overtaken him. He is, he's done. And then here come these giant eagles. And they fly in, and they are so much bigger than the evil, which you couldn't imagine anything greater than the evil until you saw the eagles. And then when the eagles come in and grab out Gandalf to rescue him, there's no doubt in your mind. Just as there was no doubt he was dead, now there's no doubt his, uh, his salvation is secure. The might and the power of the eagles overwhelms the darkness and rescues out his man. God is saying, that's what I've done. You were sure death. Our death, our judgment was absolutely sure. We could never find his favor in fulfillment of the law. And yet here came the eagles. And I bore you on eagles' wings. And anyone that watched us, the, the angelic realm looked at our salvation, and they were so sure that we were dead, and they were even more sure that our salvation is secure because of how God has rescued us. And so we're postured to respond, and he says, Now, therefore, in light of the fact that I have already rescued you and my love for you is secure, that your worth is settled, your security is settled, your assurance is settled, here's what's at stake. Now, therefore, if, conditional phrase, 
if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Now that's an if. In other words, there is a cooperative effort that we're invited to now. You can obey or disobey, amen? You can walk in obedience or walk in disobedience. And here's the effect. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. What does that mean, treasured possession? The idea of, his, of a king who is an absolute monarch, who owns all things in his kingdom. All of, the, all of the possessions of the kingdom are ultimately his, but there are certain possessions that he delights in. There, uh, the word is uh, uh, peculiar. There are uh, there's a peculiarity among some of all of what is his, which is his treasure, that he particularly delights in. It's like my toddler, who all of the toys in his little kingdom are his, but there's a couple that he drags around the house all day, every day. There's a couple that he particularly delights in. Among all the peoples of the earth, his treasured possession, there are those he particularly delights in. The word uh, rendered to us in a way we would understand it would be his love. He peculiarly and particularly loves, even among all that are his. Now, what's going on with that? Um, let, me, let me try to give it to you this way. Uh, when, when you are falling in love, quote unquote, you, you know, and, and some of you think back to uh, the days that maybe you were courting your, your, uh, the, uh, the spouse that you were sitting next to now, and then you remember that feeling of being just, just overwhelmed with love. My, my boys, when they see this on TV, whether it's in a movie or it could be even a commercial, like if they see a, 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 a boy talking to a girl, that's so foreign to them in and of itself that they go, he's in love. Like, well, no, he's just actually cordial, but you'll figure it out. But there's this idea where... where they can be in love, and, and in a way that, and you can see it, like, like, and you feel it, like your heart is consumed by the relationship or the possibility of further depth in the relationship with this particular person, this man to this woman, this woman to this man, and you, and, and, and you know what that feels like, and what you do when you're in that place is you begin to do some research. Nowadays, a lot of that's done, you know, uh, via Instagram, social media, you're texting Twitter and figuring it out, reading, finding out. We, we, uh, we didn't do it that way, but, but, we, but we had our ways of doing research. Like you ask some questions, you talk to some friends, and you start figuring out. Before you already know, you start asking, what do they love? Like, not just what do they like to do, but what, what really, like, uh, what do they delight in? <laughs> like, what, what gets her going, and, and uh, what, what particularly pleases her? And then what I would do, once I found out what Catherine delights in, my role would then be to activate those things. My way to be to creatively bring those things about so she would delight in me. And my happiness would be found in her happiness. Does this make sense? And, of course, it doesn't stop at the altar. One of the uh, things I'll share this with you that even to this day endures is uh, my, wife, my wife loves it when I grow facial hair. <laughs> I'm just going to come out and say this. Some of you are going, dude, you can't. And I'm going, I know. That's the whole curse of it all. In a world affected deeply by the fall, I do not, I'm not able to grow facial hair in any way that is cool. I, it's, it's just patchy, and, and, and frankly, I think it looks almost ridiculous. However, my wife loves it. I don't know. She loves it. Like, um, she delights in it. So here's what happens. I love the way my wife delights in even that which humiliates me. <laughs> and so I see you guys, Little Caesars and wherever else, get my hot and ready cheese on my family night for the book, and I see you, and you look at me, and I see the look in your eyes. And I see you're going, dude, what is on your face? And you know what, I, I can't, there's, there's insecurity and it's hard, but I can't just tell the story a thousand times. That's why I'm using this, taking advantage of this illustration. Let me say, I know. Okay, I get it, but I want you to know, I'm willing to endure all kinds of forms of embarrassment, persecution, suffering. I'll endure, because my happiness is not found in what you think. It's in what she thinks. And listen, listen, when she delights in, in that, man, I, I'm alive, and our intimacy is growing. Listen to me. The invitation that God's given you, 
has nothing to do with whether, his lo- whether he will love you. Love is secure. It has everything to do with what kind of intimacy you will have with him. And if you will place your happiness in his happiness, he's saying, this is what makes me happy. I'm going to give you the law. And if you're going, oh my gosh, I'm so enamored with the God who has rescued me. I want to know what, what delights you, oh God. This does let me creatively pursue obedience to the law so that he delights in me as I delight in him. And he says, if you do that, you'll be my love. You'll be my treasured possession. There will be an intimacy between you and I that not everyone shares. All of a sudden, you start seeing what relevance the law has, don't you? You start saying, hey, please don't stop this series before we get to Exodus 20. I want to understand exactly what delights the heart of my God who has saved me on this rescue mission and bore me on eagle's wings to take me out of the darkness into the light. The other thing Catherine really likes is Hallmark movies. Some of y'all don't even know what that is. and I didn't until, until her and... Man, she loves these. And so, patchy facial hair in Hallmark movies. That's the cross I bear. <laughs> but let me tell you what. To have intimacy with Catherine that is real. I, I will give my life to pursuing, delighting her heart. I don't care what the prescription is. Whatever delights her. I want her Might I say the same thing of my Savior? God, you, you just tell me. Look, my, 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 my heart surrendered. Like, you just tell me. Like, what does delight you, oh God? Just, just make it plain. And I will give it. I will do it. And it's not because I have to. It's not because I fear losing your love. It's because I delight in greater intimacy with you. Okay? He said, if you'll obey, you'll be my love. You'll be my treasured possession. I I got this on a slide. As we obey the law, we are drawn into deeper intimacy with him. First point, what relevance does the law have in our life? As we obey the law, we're drawn into deeper intimacy with him. And then he says this. um, He says, you'll not only be my treasured possession. He says, I'm going to make you a holy nation. So here's what I want you to understand. Holy is the idea of being set apart. In this world, with its governing uh, authorities and its, uh, the rules and the laws of the land, and that's particular to what land you are in, there is another governing authority that's the Lord our God in a different, um, a different code which governs even above that code of the government of the nation that you live in. There's, there's another governing authority that is going to, to give us a blueprint of how to be set apart even from the place that we live as holy unto God and that when we live according to this governing authority of the Lord and we are set apart as this holy nation, that's the very idea. We will be altogether different. It'll be obviously different. The, sli- the way I wrote it on the slide is this. That Switch to the next slide. As we walk in joyful obedience, again, joyful The obedience is a response to the gospel. As we walk in joyful obedience, the law molds us into a radical, counter-cultural community. It's different, altogether different. Set us a holy nation, a nation within the nation. It's a radical, counter-cultural community. Here's how the rest of the world, if we obeyed the law, if we delighted in it, if we joyfully obeyed, the rest of the world would look at us and they would see what's a community characterized by love, grace, selflessness, generosity. The list probably could go on. I didn't belabor it on this list, but I read through chapter 20 through chapter 24, and I just said, what things are obvious? If you were to obey the laws of the heart of God that he's given us, what, 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 how would you be, you'd be characterized by these words? Let me give you some examples. Um, with our money, you know, uh, it's probably well known if you grew up in the church, in the Old Testament there was a law. You had to give 10%. That was a tithe. Now again, uh, that already feels so restrictive, and what's God, why does God require that of them? Again, the laws respond. Like, it's when we say, God, how might we delight you, have intimacy with you? How might we give you back for what you give? And God said, okay, first fruits, give 10%. Now, there's a reason God requires that. And by the way, he doesn't just require 10%. Um, 
I read some scholarship this week that talked about if you add up all of these sacrifices and offerings that are above and beyond the 10%, every Israelite family was actually required to give 23.3% of their income. 23.3%, which again, would be radically countercultural, even for the church. Gosh, even for the church. I said that as if the church is somehow giving beyond the world, and sadly we're not. You know what the statistics are? The church gives, uh, well, the average um, Christian in 2015, or the average amount that Christians gave in 2015 was 2.5%. That was our great love response to the gospel, 2.5% per household. 5% of Bible, uh, of uh, gospel professing, Jesus professing Christians, 5% gave 10%. They're considered radical in our culture. That was just a baseline in, in, in this day for how to respond to what God's done in burying out an eagle's wings. Do you know that the world gives more than that in terms of just philanthropic giving from non-believers? You know, another one was marriage. You're going to read these laws. You're going to, this was the first generation. God said, I'm tired. Marriage is being, uh, you guys do not understand my heart in marriage. Uh, you're divorcing for any old reason at all. You're divorcing just for, oh, we'll call them irreconcilable differences. You're just leaving one another because you can't get along anymore. And, and men are allowed to divorce their women for any old thing. He says, Moses, you tell them that's got to stop. They need to, they have to, they have to write up a certificate that explains what, and they have to come to the community elders where if they say something foolish, the elders can say, that's foolish. And they can reteach the heart of God for marriage, the oneness of male and female, and the male leaving his father and mother and being united to his wife and the two becoming one. And that displays something to this world, an unconditional love that the God who has called you and redeemed and rescued is willing to love you with in spite of your rebelliousness. Can you reciprocate that to another so the world knows my love? Paul, of course, will further give a beautiful picture of that in Ephesians 5 of the church. And, we, and, and our, our, our marriage is supposed to illustrate Christ's love for the church, the way the church responds to Christ. How are we doing? The divorce rate among, in the church and outside the church is, is virtually uh, the same. Virtually the same. Here's another one. Well, you, you ought to read these chapters. I'm just giving you snippets. God said... Um, I want you to love the alien and the immigrant. He says it in, in these next chapters. I want you to love them. Doesn't, by the way, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't somehow, immediately our minds and our uh, cult and our, our world today and what we're reading in the news, immediately we think, so wait, does God not care about the protection of our citizens against danger? No, he doesn't say that. He says, pray for your governing authorities. I've set them in place. Uh, this is a false dichotomy that we have to either care about the protection of our citizens or loving the alien. It's a both and. Understand this. God gives them a law because he knows where the tendency will be. He knows the tendency will be, the natural tendency will be to protect ourselves. The unnatural tendency will be to love the immigrant and the alien. So he says, let me make clear to you, I want you to love. He said, I want you to remember being an alien in Egypt. And you remember how you were treated? Don't do that. Don't ignore them. Don't abuse them. He goes, I want you to give them the same privileges that I have given you. Wow. How radically countercultural would that be if the church, and by the way, I, I love that there's uh, advocacy going on that, that, that demonstrates, and again, I don't like if it's political posturing, but I like, I like it when there's um, expressed that the heart of our God as Christians is to love the immigrant and is to love the refugee. I like to see that. But what burdens me is, why aren't we actually loving the immigrants and refugees that are here now? Talk to someone that works with World Relief and ask him how we're doing. You know, there's, there's tens of thousands of refugees in our city. There's millions in our country. And the church is not doing anything more than the world is doing to actually love the refugees and the immigrants that are here now. You know what God said? He said, if you would take that which, I, I'm going to give you honest, if you would actually give according to the way I'm going to tell you to give, and if you would love, if you would be, love the marginalized, and if you would um, uh, treat women not as second-class citizens, as a matter of fact, it's the first ever culture in human history where it was a sin now for the man to commit adultery just as much as the woman. Uh, the, the father could leave his inheritance to a daughter just the same as he could leave it to his son. God starts changing all the rules, said, no, no, in your sinfulness, you have exploited the weak. My heart is to take whatever you have as a strength to elevate those who do not have in their weakness. 
So God goes after the marginalized of every kind, and the women, and the poor, and the unborn, and the alien, and the immigrant, and he says, and he begins to exalt, he begins to say, if we could pool the blessing that I've given you, the, uh, the resources that I've given you, um, the, the salvation by, that is merciful, that pricks your heart to love, if we can take all that and put it forth, here's what God says in Deuteronomy uh, 15, he says, there will not be a single underprivileged person in your entire country. There will be no more hunger. I was reading some stats that talked about if the church actually just tithed, which again, that's not even radical according to our standard that God gives, but if we even tithe, there'd be $165 billion per year available that are not presently available, which could end world hunger, uh, all kinds of disease, illiteracy. It would, it would just turn it on its head with a fraction of that. Now, what did he say? If you are just destroyed by the good news of the gospel. Like, like you, if, you are, if, you're, if you're so impressed with what God would do to a heathen like you, you're so impressed with his grace because you were so impressed with your unrighteousness. That your posture is going, man, how in the world do I magnify the goodness and grace of a God who did this for me? He says, okay, I'm going to give you some things that will look radically countercultural. But if you will do them, you and I will have this intimacy. You'll delight me far more than hoarding any of the other things. Like you and I will have this intimacy and the world will be blessed through you. It'll be exactly like I said. And their blessing through you, they're going to know me. That's what we're getting to. Do you see this? Um, you know what you know what grieves me is I look at the law and I look at what God gave us and I think about is the church a holy nation? Are we really set apart from the world? Jesus said in Matthew 5, you're gonna be a city on a hill that the world would look at you and you could proclaim his excellency. Are we really set apart as holy unto God? And even the statistics I've given you would, would declare no. It's, it's real muddy. There's really no delineation between those who love God, proclaim to love God, and those who don't. I'm so grieved by that. I started thinking, why is that? And the only, the only possible answer is that those who proclaim to love God really don't love him that strongly. They don't love him more than they love the things of this world. And here's the deal, why don't they love him that strongly? Under that, because they're not that impressed with what he's done for them. And so what's wrong with not being that impressed with what God's done for us? What's missing is the gospel. And so we have a church that's missing out on gospel centricity and what's left is mere religious activity. And there's no distinction between the church and the world. I think it grieves the heart of God. And to the world, we just look like hypocrites. We just look self-righteous. Um, tell you one more thing, I just have to mention this. I was so impressed by this. I was so inspired. One of the opportunities I had to meet with one of you this week, a 47-year-old single woman. And um, she's deep into a relationship, two years plus into a relationship with a man. The man is, uh, is divorced. And they've been, they're, they're very much in love. They're at the place where they're um, talking about marriage. And, and uh, she had come across the scripture that talks about Jesus, Matthew 19, saying there, um, uh, there should be no uh, divorce apart from marital unfaithfulness, which generally is understood as adultery, a sexual immorality in the marriage. And then Paul, speaking to that in 1 Corinthians 7, says, if a man leaves his wife or the wife leaves her husband, uh, for uh, really for just, just any other reason, in other words, there's not the justifiable marital unfaithfulness that Jesus gives, he just leaves. It says, let him be reconciled to his wife or remain unmarried. And she comes across this and she says, now, I don't understand. First, the conversation was relatively light. Like, like, this doesn't mean like that we can't be together, right? 
and, uh, and that weightiness came over. Like, this is, my le- this is probably my hardest, least favorite moment as a pastor. This is the fourth one of these conversations I've been in. I said, you know what, let's just, let, let's read the scripture together. Let's just read this, let's talk about it, let's talk about what's going on in your relationship. And as I read, this, this woman who has so much courage even to be there talking to me about this, as I read uh, the law of God as it pertains to divorce and remarriage. So God's heart for marriage and the ramifications of brokenness and divorce and remarriage. And, and, and God gave us something, he gave us his heart so that we could delight in him. Again, his love is not in question, but intimacy and blessing is. And I said, um, so what do you think as I'm reading these verses? What do you say? Like, you, you know more about this. And, and she knew that his divorce had nothing to do. There was no, no possible way that that fit into any kind of justifiable biblical standard. She said, you know what? What I'm hearing is, what I'm hearing is, it is not God's will for me to marry this man. And I stopped. She said it. And I said, fourth conversation like this I've ever had. No one has ever sat in your seat and it admitted those words. I said, but can I tell you what? I think you're right. And she said, um, she cried. Gosh, she cried. And then she said, you know what? I've waited 47 years for God to, for God to bring me a man. He's given me that desire of the heart. I've said, God, I trust you with that. And here I am, and I thought it was a man, but according to his word, it wouldn't be. So now the question is, will I trust him or will I trust me? And at this point, I'm a silent observer. She's verbally processing. I said, I think, I think you're right. And she said, well, I've waited this long. And I'm going to wait on the Lord. And she goes, even if he never brings me a man, that's okay. He's always been enough. Can I tell you something? I, of course, I'm in Exodus 19 in my prep, and I didn't talk to her about it. But you know what I was thinking in my heart? Oh, God, birth an unbelievable amount of intimacy between you and this woman who desires to delight in your law. Like, just, just draw her so near to you that she feels something sweeter than any broken marriage on this earth could ever give her. Like, God, either give her the desires of her heart in your timing, in a way that we can celebrate your faithfulness, or take them away, but satisfy her with your presence. I prayed to her. When she left, I told her, I said, I just got to tell you this one thing. I said, I am so inspired by someone who cares about being a part of a holy nation. I said, I've sat with three other individuals in your shoes. All three have left the church. Because they're more about fulfilling a need in a way that will never ultimately fulfill. That's the irony of it. Then they are making much of God by delighting in his law. So inspired by her faithfulness. You know what God says will happen? If we, by the way, it's a we. The Hebrew right here for you is y'all. It's not the idea just of this woman here and this guy here and that gal over there. It's not, you know, Ephesians 2, we come to that. It says, it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for you are God's workmanship. Listen to me. Created to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for you to do. Workmanship, poema is the word. That, that means we're like God's poems, Poetry, you remember back in Brit Lit, you remember poetry, and you had to read the poetry, you, remember how you, you had to study that thing, you had to delineate, and you had to figure out something about the poetry. You had to figure out the nature and intent and personality and conviction. You had to know all about the author through the poetry. When Catherine and I were dating, she wrote me letters. I was at a camp, and she wrote me letters and these letters were precious. We had no other form of communication. I would get these letters, and I would, I would just scour over them again and again. I would read those letters over and over, backwards and forwards, because I was trying to figure something out. What does this beautiful, heavenly creature, what do these words tell me about her character, her heart, her intentions, 
her personality. Like, like I want to know about her, who my heart desires, and so I read this to learn her. Here, here's, what, here's, what, here's what he's saying. You are going to be a city set up on a hill that the world can read you and determine what our God is like. They're going to look at that 47-year-old woman. And you know, you know what her own co-workers told her? She told her co-workers the struggles she was having and asked them their question. And they go, oh, nobody does that. Christians, by the way. Nobody does that. Her response, I am. You know what this is saying? Y'all, y'all as a community, radical, countercultural, together, a city on a hill. This isn't individual. This is what we do. In fact, that's part of the point of covenant membership and praying for each other and holding each other accountable and being in places where we're known so that we can together walk forward with this standard. Not because we're concerned that we're going to lose favor, but because we want to delight, we want to experience that intimacy, we want God to experience the glory that is due his name around the nations. Here's how that works. The third point, as we are molded into this countercultural community, we become a city on a hill that draws people into the presence of God. He said, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You know what the point of a priest is? A priest draws people into the presence of God. He said, you'll be a kingdom of priests. When the city is on a hill and it's set apart as a holy nation with an entirely different governing authority, here's what happens. The people in the darkness are drawn into the light of God's holiness. And God's holiness penetrates the darkness. And I want to ruin a little moment that's coming in a few weeks, but you know what happens in Exodus 24? When God finishes giving them the law, Moses says, Israel, what do you do with this? You know what they said? They said, we will obey it. We're gonna obey all of it. And you know what, I love that moment where their salvation was so clear. Like the rescue of God and now he's given them one delight and they're going, yes! I pray that is where we are on the edge of our seat even today saying, Give it to us. We're going to do it. The only problem is that we read the story and the pages that follow and what? They're going to stumble and fail over and over and over and over again. And you know what's true? We do the same thing. We stumble and fail again and again. But there is a difference between that generation and our generation. And here's the difference in 1 Peter 2.9. But you, speaking of us. In light of a generation that stumbled in their disobedience, he said, but you, being something is categorically different about us, you are a chosen race. By the way, he's not going to use the word if. There's no conditional phrase anymore. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The treasured possession. You are that. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Listen, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have. What's the difference? The difference is Christ. The difference is that in our inability to be God's treasured possession, Christ became our treasured possession. Listen to me. In his righteousness, we're declared righteous. By virtue of his perfect righteousness, we are set apart as a holy nation. Because of his perfect righteousness, we're invited into this kingdom of priests, this priesthood of all believers. And in our inability, he becomes our treasured possession. I'll give you this on the screen. In our inability to obey the law, we are constantly reminded of our need for Christ. And our affections for him are stirred anew. It's cyclical, really. It's cyclical how this works. Let me show you this. We're rescued, and God's rescue mission um, creates in us a desire to obey. As we obey, there's a sense, we're his love, there's intimacy with God, we're his treasured possession. As we walk in obedience as his treasured possession, he, we are set apart. Just walking in obedience. He has, already, he has already put forth the laws in a way that set us apart as a holy nation. And as a, holy, a nation, we get to serve as a kingdom of priests. And yet in our 
great desire to be a kingdom of priests to draw others in, we continually stumble and fail. And we're reminded of our need for Christ and the rescue mission, which sends us right back into joyful obedience. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. This is how the church ought to be growing together in godliness as we delight in his law together. Just make a few closing statements. I want to tell you that the gospel, if you hear nothing else, hear this, it compels us, it compels us towards obedience. And yet at the very same time, it whispers in our ear when we stumble and fail, you're still loved. Understand this, the gospel, the incomplete gospel, gospel devoid of the law, produces shallow spirituality devoid of intimacy. The law without the gospel produces a treadmill of performance in which you will inevitably end up frustrated, confused, and hurting, and exhausted. The true gospel says, here, you're free, you can get off the treadmill, I love you, I already loved you. And your love is secure. And it frees you from shallow spirituality and says, no, 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 I've got so much more. Come near. Draw near to me. Delight in me. Delight in my law. And so the gospel produces in us this unbelievable humility in gratitude, in repentance. And presses us forward towards obedience, towards intimacy with our Savior. Want to be a place of gospel centrality not a place of religious activity. Do you understand the difference? Anybody excited about receiving the law next week? Lord, give it to us. Tell us how we can stir your heart. Let us know how we delight you, oh God. Because that is our supreme desire in light of the way you have loved us. Father, I thank you for this text which just postures our hearts in a position where we can properly understand the commands you've given us. We can understand holiness and not be afraid or not feel like that's something that has to beat us down. Like, like that, we, that we could be so thankful that your desire is to set even us apart as a holy nation so that the world might know what we know, that you are a God who loves mercifully and graciously and holy. That they might know that there's peace found in Christ alone. There's hope found in Christ alone. That salvation is found in Christ alone. That's our desire. You've given us that. There was a day we didn't care. There was a day we shook our fist at the heavens. And yet, God, you have liberated and you have redeemed. You've done exactly what you promised. And you've done it even with us, the most undeserving of people. So break our hearts with a desire for more of you and for more of your will on this earth. Let us be the, the platform. Let us be the, the slate that you can draw a beautiful picture on that the world might see it and know your love. Thank you, Lord, for the law and thank you for the context of the gospel. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.